Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 17. 1 Chronicles chapter 17. As you're turning there, I'll just add a quick addendum to uh, an announcement that was made earlier in uh, the service. We do have a members meeting tonight. A large function of that members meeting is to hear the recommendation of two new elder candidates. Uh, so don't come just to vote, come prepared to hear those recommendations. I want to especially encourage, uh, we have a lot of young people in the church who are members of the church. Uh, hope you guys will be with us tonight as members of Emmanuel. It's wonderful that you can be part of the youth group here. Uh, it's a far higher privilege to be a member of one of Christ's churches and to do the business of Christ's church. And so we need you, you need us. Come here this evening at 5 o'clock as we meet together. We're in a series of sermons titled, The Christ is Coming. The purpose of these messages is to go to some of the major points in the Old Testament that prepare us for the coming of Christ and also inform us as to the work that it is Christ has come to do, that we might better understand His person and His work in our lives. So we looked a number of weeks ago at Adam and Eve and that promise that a descendant from Eve would come and that he would crush the serpent's head. Uh, we looked at Abraham, the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and in subsequent passages. We considered the Passover in Exodus 12. Last week, we looked at Moses and his words in Deuteronomy 18 that a, a true and better prophet would come from among uh, the brothers of Israel and that he would come and speak God's word to us ultimately and definitively. Uh, now we come to consider uh, what we learn about David and the promise made to him in 1 Chronicles 17. So hopefully you're there by now. There's a parallel account to 1 Chronicles 17 and 2 Samuel 7. The accounts are nearly identical. I'm not going to read them both this morning. We'll consider the account of the promise to David that we have in 1 Chronicles 17. We'll read through verse 15. Please follow along as I read. Now when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. Verse 3. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, It is not you who will build me a house to dwell in, for I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all Israel did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. Verse 8. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. 
and his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray once more. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. We come before it now. Thank you for the gift of your spirit who is among us to breathe upon the word, to bring the truth to life, how we need him. Father, we pray now in this hour you would be our teacher from your word. Help us to behold wonderful things from the Bible. Uh, Help us to comprehend better what it is you have done in the history of redemption to bring about our salvation. And please, Lord, teach us applications and implications of these things that we might live rightly before you and know you as you wish to be known. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A little over two months ago, my wife Jenna and I were in Oxford in England, and uh, while we were there, uh, we drove just a few miles outside of Oxford to visit uh, Blenheim Palace. I don't know if you have heard of Blenheim Palace before. It's the ancestral home of Sir Winston Churchill, who I hope you've heard of. Uh, After we toured the massive house and estate, uh, we drove just about a mile away to St. Martin's Church to visit the churchyard where Winston Churchill is buried, uh, which was a very moving experience to stand at the grave of the indispensable man, a man to whom we all really owe uh, so much. While we were there, we also, just a few yards off from Churchill's grave, examined the grave of one Randolph Churchill. Uh, Randolph Churchill was Winston Churchill's father. Uh, He was briefly chancellor of the Exchequer. He was uh, the Secretary of State for India. He was a leader in the Conservative Party in England. Uh, But odds are you don't know any of that about Randolph Churchill. In fact, you don't really care much, I imagine, about Randolph Churchill. Uh, The reason you know the name Randolph Churchill and the reason you are hearing me talk about Randolph Churchill now is because of the only fact about Randolph Churchill that really matters. It is that he was Winston Churchill's father. Uh, in fact, that's what's written on Randolph Churchill's gravestone. You look at his gravestone, it's Randolph Churchill, father of Winston Churchill. Randolph Churchill is famous and is known to history not because of who he was, but because of who his son was. Uh, so Jenna and I didn't go to St. Martin's Church that morning to visit the grave of Randolph Churchill. We were much more interested in his greater son, Winston Churchill. We were there to visit his grave and to reflect on his accomplishments, because whatever Randolph Churchill's accomplishments, and there were some, they're all just eclipsed by the greater achievements and accomplishments of his greater son, Winston. Okay, so that's how it is with David in the Bible. Because the only reason we know about David is actually because of David's greater son, who is, of course, Jesus. The most important thing about David, kids, it's important you hear me say this, the most important thing about David is not that he killed Goliath. Okay? It's not that he uh, had an affair with Bathsheba. It's not that he won many victories. It's not that he lived in a palace made of cedar. The big deal with David is the son that would come from his line. The big deal with David is that he was a distant relative of Jesus Christ who was his true and better son who would reign on his throne forever and ever. The text we're going to consider, consider this morning tells us why David matters in the Bible. It has everything to do with a covenant, a promise, that God entered into with David concerning a son that would come from his line. Now, this whole issue of the covenant with David and the promise that he would have a son who would rule on his father's throne forever, there is nothing in the Old Testament that contributes more 
to messianic expectation than this covenant. Because we've been considering a lot of uh, things in the Old Testament that build anticipation for the coming of Jesus and that create what we're calling messianic expectation, that the Messiah is coming. Of all the promises revealed in the Old Testament, this is the one that creates the most anticipation for the coming of the Messiah. From, from the promise made to David on in redemptive history, about a thousand more years before Christ comes, this kind of takes the cake. Um, there are subsequent references, of course, to Abraham and to Moses and to others, but they kind of fade to the background. Uh, the, big, the big story in the Psalms and in the prophets is that a son from David's line is going to come. And this son is going to be established on David's throne forever and ever. This becomes the big issue. Uh, in fact, uh, other than Jesus himself, David is referenced more than anybody else. Uh, David is referenced actually over a thousand times in the Bible. Uh, Abraham, by comparison, is only referenced a little over 300 times. So just in terms of the volume of words in the Scriptures, David is just a major figure, second only to Jesus Christ uh, in terms of his prominence in the Scriptures. And I just want to repeat again the assertion I made a few weeks ago as we've looked now at Abraham and Moses and this morning David. If you comprehend those three figures and all that the Bible says about those three figures, you are well on your way to comprehending the whole Bible. Uh, Abraham, Moses, and David are so prominent in the Scriptures, none more prominent than David. Now, most of you, I hope, know who David is. You have some frame of reference for his story. Uh, he was chosen from among his brothers to be king over Israel. He was the youngest of eight brothers. He was in some ways the most unimpressive. Uh, the Lord had to tell Samuel, who was the prophet before Nathan, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, uh, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Speaking of David's older brother, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So David was not the most impressive among his brothers, but he was the one who God had chosen. You see, God had a purpose in calling David and making him king. David had been a humble shepherd, but the Lord would make him king over all of Israel. And David's narrative, if you read his narrative in Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, is truly extraordinary. From his time under Saul's tyranny to his eventual rule to his many successes and failings as king, David has one of the most compelling narratives in all the Bible. But this sermon is not about his narrative. This sermon is about the one way in which David is most relevant to the Bible's overall narrative. This sermon is about the promise made concerning David's greater son, Jesus Christ, and the central significance of this one promise in the unfolding of redemptive history. So I want us to consider this morning the covenant that God made with David. Now, it will not be possible uh, to consider all the features of the promise and the different aspects of the promise. It certainly will not be possible uh, to examine every subsequent reflection on the promise in Scripture. Uh, we could be here for hours and hours looking at passages that reflect on the Davidic promise. I just want to look at the main thrust of the promise uh, so that we could all hopefully leave today answering the question, what was the main promise made to David that we would all comprehend the essence of the promise. I more want us, though, to consider how that promise then unfolds in redemptive history. I kind of want to look at the promise in three stages. So these are my three headings this morning. Number one, the promise is made. Number two, the promise grows dim. And number three, the promise is accomplished. The promise is made, the promise grows dim. Number three, the promise is accomplished. Consider with me, number one, the promise is made. Okay, so looking at 1 Chronicles 17, we learn the context of the promise 
uh, the context in which the promise is made, is David's desire to build for God a house. And the logic is simple. God is so great and glorious, should he not have a great and glorious temple in which to dwell? David is walking around his palace and he's looking at the wonderful halls of cedar that he's living in. He's thinking, why should I be in a greater physical house than God himself? But of course, God makes plain through Nathan the prophet that he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He is in no need of a house for David to build for him. And children, I just want to emphasize, you know why that is? Like God doesn't need a house to live in like we need houses to live in? It is because God is everywhere. God created the world. And in fact, to think that he's just going to be confined to a particular physical space uh, almost like denigrates his glory. It kind of brings it down. The reality is God is everywhere, and God doesn't need us to build him impressive buildings or something like that for him to dwell in. He reminds David that he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands or in tents made with hands. God instead emphasizes what he is going to do for David, not what David will do for God. So God reminds David of his grace and mercy toward him. He reminds David of how he took him from the pastures where he was following the sheep and made him to be a prince over the people of Israel. Now, he reminds David of how he had protected him and how he overthrew all his enemies. And then God makes a series of promises to David. So if you look at the middle of verse 8, 1 Chronicles 17, he says, I will make for you a name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I wonder if you've been with us in this series, does that remind you of anyone? Have we heard that promise before? It's similar to the promise that God makes to Abraham. He was going to make his name great in the earth. Well, there's almost a kind of restatement or resonance at least of that promise that was given to Abraham. David's name is now uh, going to be uh, great. He says in verse 9, the Lord says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Again, resonances of the promise made to Abraham. God's going to have a place for his people. He's going to plant them in the land. Interesting that this promise comes after they actually already inherited the promised land. Like Abraham, they were waiting for something more uh, than that land that was given to the people of Israel. Now, uh, verse 9, middle of verse 9, and violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. Let's stop there. David wanted to build God a house. That's how this started, right? And the Lord says, no, I'm going to build you a house. Uh, now, there's a word play here on the word house. You understand that, right? When David said he was going to build God a house, what did he have in mind? He had a building kind of like this one. Hopefully, probably a lot more glorious than this one, okay? He was going to build a physical space for God to dwell in that bespoke something of God's glory. But God says, no, I don't need that. No, thank you. He says, actually, I'm going to build you a house. Uh, now, he doesn't mean by that a physical space for David to dwell in. Uh, what does he mean by this? He means I'm going to build you a house in the sense of a dynasty, the sense of a kingdom, or the sense of a people. I'm going to build a, a house for you, and it's going to be such a house for you. Verse 11, here's the main promise. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you. That's a reference to Saul. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne 
shall be established forever. Now, as I said a moment ago, there are all sorts of details in this passage, and we could consider the parallel passage in 2 Samuel 7. That would be very profitable to examine, but I just want to stick with the big picture here. What is the big thing that God is promising to David? He says he's going to raise up one of his sons after him. And he's going to establish his kingdom and his throne forever. God himself will be a father to him, and he will be a son. And this son will build a house for God, a house in the sense of a dynasty and a people. The essence of the Davidic promise, the promise made to David, is that David's greater son will come and will rule on his father's throne. And his kingdom, his throne, and his rule will endure forever. God himself will establish his rule. Randolph Churchill, fine, good guy, did some things. Winston Churchill saved the world, right? Figuratively. David, man after God's own heart, a good man in many ways, fallible, imperfect. His greater son will be the savior of the world. He will be the ruler over all. God is going to establish his kingdom and own his throne forever and ever. And this promise, as I said, in many ways shapes the rest of the Old Testament. What is God going to do through David's greater son. That becomes the focus of pretty much everything in the rest of the Old Testament. It is the dominant idea also when we turn to the New Testament in the gospel accounts themselves when it comes to the whole subject of messianic expectation and who the Messiah would be. So as we read on in the Old Testament after 1 Chronicles 17 and 2 Samuel 7, we encounter in the Old Testament Scriptures many further reflections on the Davidic promise by the Old Testament writers. And as we do, we come to understand there are more dimensions to the promise. Okay, so in 1 Chronicles 17 and 2 Samuel 7, where the covenant is first made, the basic framework is sort of set forth for the promise. Uh, But as we read on and subsequent Old Testament writers reflect on the promise, we learn more about what this rule would entail. For example, we will learn in the Psalms and in the prophets, and their reflection on this promise to David, that this rule of the Messiah, this rule of David's son, this rule of the Lord's anointed, is not going to be confined to ethnic Israel, but is actually going to encompass all the nations of the world. So the nations will come and bow to this king. The nations will come and embrace this king. The rule is going to extend beyond ethnic Israel. Uh, We learn in subsequent uh, passages as well Uh, that this promise of a kingdom that God is going to give to this son and establish for this son will be a kingdom that is marked by peace and justice and righteousness and gladness. Uh, There are illustrations that are used of what life will be like under this king's rule. You may know the references in Isaiah to the, the, the wolf and the lamb lying down together or the lion and the lamb lying down together and children being able to handle snakes. What's the idea there? Well, it's not like certain kooky, you know, teachers today who handle snakes in worship services. Uh, The idea is there's going to be no more violence under this king's rule when it is ultimately fully and finally consummated. And so as we read on in the Old Testament Scriptures, many passages highlight the promise and enlarge upon the promise. As I said, many of these passages are contained in the Psalms. Uh, When you read the Psalms, Uh, Many of the Psalms will direct us to this Davidic son or this Davidic king uh, comes up again and again. And it is this promise that forms the foundation of what we sometimes call messianic Psalms. Maybe you've heard us use 
those words before. Maybe you're familiar with that category, maybe not. Some of the psalms we recognize are messianic psalms, meaning they are in some way anticipating the coming of the Messiah, the coming of David's greater son. So this is helpful just as a kind of Christianity 101 thing when you're reading the psalms. You have to recognize that in many of them, they're anticipating the coming of the Messiah. They may be saying some things that are true of David as the king of Israel, but in some way they're sort of foretelling of what David's greater son is going to be, what the Davidic king and his kingdom is going to be like. So there's many psalms like this. Uh, Psalm 2 is like this, Psalm 16 is like this, Psalm 45, Psalm 72, Psalm 110. I want to ask you to one such psalm, just so you get a, an example of this, turn to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Uh, this is not a psalm of David, this is a psalm of Ethan, the Ezraite. And here I just want us to see how the Davidic promise is picked up. God has promised that He's going to bring from David's line a son who will reign on his father's throne forever. And I want us to see in one of the psalms how the psalmist Ethan reflects on this promise. Psalm 89, look with me if you would at verse 19. This is sometime after the promise was made to David originally in 1 Chronicles 17. Verse 19, of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one, that's Nathan, and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. Verse 24, my faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. What's he doing so far in the psalm? More or less reasserting the Davidic promise. saying, remember, this is what was said to our father David. Verse 30, if his children forsake my law... And do not walk according to my rules. If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Now, what the psalmist anticipates here is exactly what happens in Israel's history. Uh, The line of David does not remain obedient to God, and they are chastised. He says judgment is going to come to disobedient offspring of David. But then look at verse 33. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies." Uh, Some of us here uh, have watched, I understand, the hit Netflix series, Stranger Things. I won't ask you to raise your hand and admit if you've watched Stranger Things, okay? But what's the big line in Stranger Things that's repeated several times? Does anyone know it? Well, I guess if you say it, you'll have to admit you watched it, okay? So I'll admit I've watched it. The big line that is repeated several times is what? Friends don't lie. Friends don't lie. 
Well, brothers and sisters, friends actually lie all the time. Your friends have lied to you, and you have lied to your friends. But what we learn in this passage is that God never lies. I will not lie. I will keep my covenant with David. He swears by his holiness, which means for God to lie to break his word would be to say that God is a sinner. He swears by his holiness, I will not lie. He will not lie to David, friends. He will not lie to us. Here in 1 Chronicles 17, 2 Samuel 7, again in the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 89 that we've seen, God has made his promise that a son would come from the line of David and rule over the whole earth in righteousness and truth and splendor forever and ever. The promise has been made. Uh, In a sense, the board has been set. And now the pieces will begin to move in redemptive history. So consider with me now the second major heading, second major sort of plot movement in this promise. The promise is made. Secondly now, the promise grows dim. The promise grows dim. So what happens in Israel's history after this promise and after David's reign? Where do things sort of go from here? David's son Solomon is on the throne. In some ways, a kind of initial fulfillment of the Davidic promise, but of course not the, the fully anticipated fulfillment of the promise. Solomon reigns. And what happens after Solomon's reign? Solomon's sons, they sort of blow it, right? And the kingdom is divided. The kingdom is split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. That's not what you would expect, I think, if you were a believing Jew in Israel. There's a kind of dissonance A kind of dissonance, this is very important, there's a kind of dissonance between what God had promised and what seems to be happening in Israel's history and in their experience. God said that a son of David would rule on his father's throne in righteousness. So why is the kingdom splitting now? And why do these kings seem to love wickedness? That's something of Israel's experience at that moment in redemptive history. There would be a number of wicked kings in Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Uh, One of them is Jehoram, who is the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, descended from David's line. Jehoram is a wicked king. Listen to this description we have of Jehoram in 2 Chronicles 21, verse 5. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, so this is bad. Now the line of David, the line of kings, is being known for characteristic wickedness. Now to walk in the way of the kings of Israel is to walk in evil, to walk in sin. But listen then to what is said in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 7, yet the Lord, that's the Old Testament version of but God, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David, and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. What is God saying in this passage? He's saying, I will not lie. I will keep my word. The promise looks bleak. The promise looks dim. The kingdom is split. There are wicked kings in Israel, but I'm not going to remove my covenant from David. I'm going to keep the word that I have sworn to your father, David. You're unfaithful to me. You tempt my wrath. I'm still going to bring about this good for you. 
I'm going to keep my word. I will not remove my steadfast love from David. Even when the promise looks dim, it will endure, and one day it will be fulfilled. Well, what happens next? Eventually, the monarchy itself is brought to nothing. There is no son of David on his father's throne. There's no son of David on the throne in Israel. So now it's not that the kings are evil, it's that the kings are no more. There's no longer a king in Israel, and this is really where the Israelites go into panic mode. God sends prophets to them. And certainly these prophets, they pronounce judgments over Israel for their idolatry and their spiritual adultery, for their wickedness. But one of the things the prophets come to do is to reassure Israel that God has not lied to them, that God will keep His promises, that there will be a son of David to rule forever on his father's throne. He is coming even though the promise looks dim. Isaiah is such a prophet. So Isaiah is prophesying in the year that King Uzziah died, he foretells of Israel's captivity to Babylon. So in the early chapters of Isaiah, he's telling them, you're going to be in bondage, you're going to be in captivity. God's people will be under uh, the rule of uh, foreign leaders. And he pronounces judgment over Israel, but he also assures them that God's steadfast love will not be removed from them. And his commitment to keep his word concerning the coming Davidic king, it will be sure. You have to recognize, to feel the full weight of the passages I'm about to read to you, you have to recognize what captivity in Babylon would mean for the people in Israel. It would appear to them under Babylonian captivity as though all the promises that God had made so far in the Old Testament have come to nothing. The land that was promised, where's the land now? It's not ours. We don't know anything. We don't even own the shirts on our backs. The land is gone. The temple is gone. The monarchy is gone. What happened to God's promises? Is God a liar? That's an existential question for the Israelites living in their Babylonian captivity. What happened to the promise? Where did it go? Well, this is indeed a terrible period for the people of Israel. But Isaiah labors to tell them that the promise is still in play. You need to believe better than you see, maybe even believe better than you feel. He wants to tell them the promise is still in play, the promise is still alive. It's faint, it's dim, but it is coming. And so he says in Isaiah 9 verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then we get the big text we read at Christmas. Isaiah 9 verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, God is zealous to keep His Word. The zeal of the Lord 
His gracious purposes expressed through his steadfast love to David, they will be fulfilled. I will not lie. I will keep my word. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And then we read a similar promise in Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Jesse's David's father, right? That's the line. The picture is there's going to be this tree that's been grounded down to a little stump. It's just a nub. It's nothing. And then a a shoot's going to come from it. There's going to be a blossom on the tree that appeared to be dead. There will come a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, fruit born from a dead tree. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In that day, verse 10, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. You're you're Israel in captivity, and you're being told the nations are going to inquire of this, this shoot from the stump of Jesse. There is a song that we sing around Christmas time in this church that I desperately want you all to like. My fear is the language is so old and antiquated that you're having trouble entering into the song, okay? So I want to help you from Isaiah 11 to appreciate this song. It's old English, okay? The, the title of it is, Lo, How a Rose Air Blooming. Lo, How a Rose Air Blooming from tender stem has sprung of Jesse's lineage coming as men of old have sung. It came a flower bright amid the cold of winter when half spent was the night. This is working from Isaiah 11, the the shoot from the stump of Jesse. This flower bright is, is coming into bloom. And did you hear what was said in those final lines? It came a flower bright amid the cold of winter when half spent was the night. Flowers don't grow in winter, right? They grow in spring. I was over at my friend's, the Hathaway's house for a birthday party the other day. They moved into their house in winter. They didn't know about the, uh, uh, the plan for the plants that were all there. And then in the spring, they just surprise after surprise, all these blooms of all these different things that they didn't know were part of the house there. The idea is this, that, that the promise looks so dim and so bleak. This songwriter says it was like the cold of winter, the middle of winter's chill, when half spent was the night. Now, what's that saying? When half spent was, that's the darkest time of the night, when things looked bleakest, when things looked darkest, when the world was most cold, then the blossom comes. Then the shoot from the stump of Jesse will come. When things look most hopeless, when the night is darkest, it's then that the son of David is going to come and seize the throne of his father. Well, some years after Isaiah's prophecy, Jeremiah prophesies while God's people actually are in exile. Isaiah was foretelling it. Jeremiah's prophesying both before and during the exile. And he also tells the Israelites, living now in exile, that the promise is still alive. He says, Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. 
In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. I have tons more text here, and I'm not managing my time very well. I'll just read one more, Zechariah 13.1. On that day, there should be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. What are the prophets saying? I know it appears dark. I know it appears bleak, but God will keep his word. The promise is coming. It will not delay. In God's timing, he will keep his word. A son from the line of David will come. Point number one, the promise is made. Point number two, the promise grows dim. Now consider with me thirdly and finally, the promise is fulfilled. The promise is fulfilled. So the Davidic promise is not just a big deal in the Old Testament, the Psalms and the Prophets. It is one of the main themes, actually, of the New Testament, that David's son has come and that he has come to rule and reign forever and ever. This is highlighted in the very first words of the New Testament. We have all this hope and expectation, all this hope and expectation, all this anticipation. And after Malachi, the canons close, and you have 400 years of silence. It's the bleak midwinter. Half spent was the night. And then we read Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David. He's come. The son of David is here, the shoot from the stump of Jesse. The flower will begin to bloom. We get a fuller exposition of Jesus' sonship of David in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Just listen to these texts as I read them. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man who was, whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And everybody reading this narrative is like, could this be it? He's of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. What's he saying? The promise is here. In your womb, Mary, Jesus comes from the line of kings. Joseph, his father, the son of David. And some of you might be thinking, well, if Joseph is not his biological father, well, then is it true that Jesus really came from the line of kings? Well, I hope this encourages you, especially if you have adopted, are adopted, or are considering adoption. Uh, this passage teaches us, more compellingly than anywhere in the Bible, that adoptive parenthood is parenthood. Joseph was Jesus' father in every meaningful sense, in the most important sense. David comes from the line of the kings. Joseph is his father, and he will reign on his father's throne forever and ever. In John 1, verse 47 through 49, now Jesus is grown. He's a man. The disciples, there's all this buzz about Jesus. We read there, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. That's what Nathanael says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. We found him. Remember, this was the same chapter we quoted last week. 
uh, where it was said, I believe of Philip, we found the one of whom Moses wrote of in the law. Nathanael says, we found the king of Israel. He's now among us. In Acts chapter 2, Peter uh, cites a couple of Messianic psalms, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, uh, to make clear to his audience that the Davidic son has come. This one who you crucified, he's actually the king over all Israel. He is the son of David. In Acts 13, Paul preaching in Pisidian Antioch, he says this, uh, then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he has promised. In other words, God doesn't lie. Jesus has come from this line. He has kept his words. So many other passages I could cite. Let me just mention two more in Revelation. Revelation 5, just listen as I read. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The son of David is here. The son of David has come. His name is Jesus. And do you know what are Jesus' last words in the Bible? So the first words of the New Testament are that Jesus Christ is the son of David. You know what his last words are? They're found in Revelation 22, verse 16. There, Jesus himself says this, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Do you think this promise is a big deal? That David's greater son would come and that he would rule over all in peace and justice and righteousness and gladness forever and ever and ever, and that even the nations would come in under his reign and under his rule. He is the root and the descendant of David. He is the bright and morning star. I really struggled this week. You all who hear me preach regularly, you know I'll have an outline and then I have applications. I just don't really know where to begin with the applications, honestly. I mean, they just sort of kind of spin out. If Jesus is king, well, then everything, right? I mean, like, how do you begin to, to make applications? And so it occurred to me there'd be a lot of things that are appropriate to say. We learn so much in the Gospels about what Jesus' kingdom is like and what it means that Jesus is king and what its implications are for us. And so it occurred to me that it might be important to say that this kingdom that Jesus comes and establishes that God is establishing through the Davidic Son, through the Lord Jesus, it would be important to say uh, that His kingdom is not established or extended through violence or physical conquest, but rather His rule is extended through the salvation that He offers in the gospel, through men and women coming under His rule through repentance and faith. That would be a very important point, I think, to make. In John 18, verse 36, Jesus says this to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my disciples would be fighting. Uh, but see, His rule is a rule of love. Uh, his rule is a rule in which we come under it through believing in Him, trusting in Him, and following Him. So to extend the kingdom all 
conversation on advancing the kingdom of God, well, I think it's important that we recognize it's a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom that is accomplished through the gospel going forth and men and women believing it unto the salvation of their souls. It occurred to me also that it would be important to say that the kingdom of God brings with it certain laws, certain commandments. There are certain kingdom ethics. Uh, So every king has his laws, right? The rules by which his subjects are to live. Jesus is no different. He gives us his law. He gives us his rules. He gives us the precepts by which his loyal subjects are to live. And we talked about that some last week. I think when we come before the Sermon on the Mount, uh, this is to be very much in our minds. This is the king telling us what life in his kingdom is meant to be like. Uh, We're to be, as a local church, sort of embassies of that kingdom, Expressions of that kingdom in the here and now, and when it's fully consummated at the last day, everyone will live this way in perfect righteousness and sinlessness. It occurred to me to say also that this kingdom is only uh, partially inaugurated now, that it will be consummated in all its fullness at the second coming. All of these things are important things to say about the kingdom. You might think of all of Jesus' parables about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like, and we could fill in the blank with lots of teaching from Jesus. For the purposes of this message, because we're going to expound Matthew, God willing, in the fall. Well, we're going to start it in the fall. Who knows how long it will take. But there are two applications I'd like to emphasize. Two applications for this morning I want to emphasize. Number one, first of all, we should all see illustrated in the promise to David the truth that God keeps his promises even when they look dim. We should all see illustrated in the promise to David, and we could say the historical unfolding of that promise, the truth that God keeps His promises, even when they look dim. I think the history of the promise made to David is one of the most compelling proofs that God will never lie. I mean, just try to put yourself in the framework, in the shoes, in the existential moment of those Israelites in captivity. All the promises are gone, as far as you can tell. Almost every substantive thing that God said was going to happen for you is not happening. Think back on the covenants. Where's, where's the son of Eve who's going to crush the serpent's head? I haven't seen that happen yet. Uh, What happened to the promises that were given to Abraham? Land and seed and blessing. Where's our land? I don't see any land. Where's the son of Abraham that's supposed to come? I thought blessing was going to come to the nations. I didn't think they were going to be our oppressors and our captors. Whatever happened to the prophet greater than Moses who's going to come and speak God's words to us? Where's the son of David? Where's the land? Where's the temple? Where's the throne? Not only could the promises not have looked more dim, it appears the very promises themselves are being reversed. There's no son of David on the throne. We have someone else over us. We're in bondage to the Babylonians. My friend, it may appear to you in your own life now uh, that, that God's promises are not being fulfilled. Uh, that actually uh, things going on in your experience are such that, that there could be no way, you cannot see a way, you cannot look before you and see how God is going to actually do the things that He said He's going to do for you. 
He said he'll never leave me or forsake me. He says he'll keep me unto the end. He says he'll work all things together for my good. I don't see any way he can fulfill his word to me. I just want to encourage you this morning from the history of the promise made to David, God will never lie. Friends will lie. Your spouse may lie to you. Everyone lies. It's endemic to human nature, but God does not lie. Look at how he fulfilled his promise to David. May we all draw comfort wherever we are. Though the promise looks dim, it will not delay. God will keep his word. Just as that shoot, that spring came from that little stump of Jesse, so God will keep his word to us. He will save us to the uttermost. He will work all things together for good. You may not see it now. And I'll just remind you of that quote I've highlighted several times from Jeremiah Burroughs. When, when faith, excuse me, when reason can go no higher, faith has to get on the shoulders of reason and see land through all this sadness. God will keep his word. He will do what he has promised to do. A second application, very simply, last week I said that to come to Christ means we come to him as a prophet, as a teacher, as a lawgiver. Don't think you have come to Christ if you have not come to him as a prophet, a teacher, a lawgiver like and better than Moses. In light of this passage this morning, we see that to come to Christ means we come to him as a king. To come to Christ at all is to come under his rule, to come under his authority, to become his loyal servants and his faithful subjects. Friends, make no mistake, no one has Jesus as Savior who doesn't have Jesus as King, doesn't have Jesus as Lord. Christ is the only sovereign, the Lord of all, the King of the nations, the root, the descendant of David. He is the King of the cosmos. All rule belongs to Jesus Christ, which means to know Him, to love Him, to follow Him is to embrace His rule in your life. You've all heard that great Abraham Kuyper quote, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Christ does rule over the cosmos. Does he rule in your heart? Have you given to him every square inch? And I would just encourage you, now Christians here, We're imperfect, we sin, we fail the Lord. Are you submitting to Jesus now as Lord and as King? Are you embracing His rule in your life? Are there areas of your life that you want to hang on to as your little kingdom? Okay, He can go here and no further. My friend, to come to Jesus at all is to come to Him as the King of your heart, to rule in your heart, to rule in your life. And he must have every square inch. That's what it means to love and follow Jesus. To revere him, to honor him, to know him, to love him, to embrace him and accept him as the king. Maybe you're here and you don't acknowledge Jesus to be the Lord. You don't acknowledge Jesus as your king. You don't profess to be a Christian. You've been hearing me talk about this this morning. Well, I don't intend to try to persuade you with a number of apologetic arguments that Jesus actually did come from the line of David, that he did rise from the dead, and that he is in fact the king. This is a worship gathering. We're glad that you can be here. We assume those things to be true. We can have an apologetic conversation in my study afterwards, if you would like that. But I do nonetheless want to appeal to you. What do you make of the claim 
that Jesus is king? And why haven't you embraced him as your king? Uh, so you may say, uh, I have no king. Okay, um, uh, I don't have someone ruling over me. But of course, you know that's not true. To, to not have Jesus as king is just to have self as king. Okay, you may say, well, I'm an existentialist, I'm a nihilist. Well, then existentialism and nihilism is your king. We're all under some rule. The rule is whoever it is that is telling us how to live and who we're embracing as the one who's regulating our behavior and regulating our desires and our lives. And so if Jesus is not on the throne, someone's on it. And for many of us, I imagine that might be that self is on the throne. And I'll just appeal, you, appeal to you from my own experience. I, I was reflecting on my own conversion this week, and I remember how prominent self was in regulating everything that I was and did. It just animated everything. And um, I just think that's tyranny. It was just so miserable to give self the throne in our lives. The Christians that you see among you here this morning are those who have left off self, repented of sin, and dethroned self as the primary ruler in their hearts and have put Christ on that throne, accepted His rule in their lives. Uh, now, you may think, you know, for Christ to be a ruler, for Christ to be king, and to demand that kind of space in my life, well, that seems kind of uh, uh, oppressive of Him. That seems kind of heavy-handed that he would have and expect and require that he be king over my life. It would be if Christ were a tyrant. But Christ's rule, my friend, is a rule of love. It is a king who knows and loves and communes with and fellowships with his subjects. It's a king who shares with his people his kingdom and gives them all good things. To come under his rule is the greatest and most gracious kind of rule. He calls us, repent and believe, and you can come into my kingdom. You can be one of my subjects. You can eat at my table. You can have everlasting life and be with me in paradise forever. You may say, well, well that's, that's a very cheap opinion for him to have. You don't know what I have to give up in order to do that. Uh, so he's just going to let me in the door if I do this, and does he know what that will mean for my life? This, I think, is exactly the point that many people outside of Christ don't understand. Jesus isn't giving his opinion and perspective from the cheap seats. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world. He suffered, and he went to the cross to die to satisfy the righteous demands of his holy law. He satisfied the demands of the ethics of his kingdom, the rules of his kingdom. He made it such that the offer can freely go forward, that all those who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ and embrace His rule, they will be saved. Because He Himself came, because He Himself died to make a way of access into His kingdom for all those who turn to Him in repentance and faith. So I just encourage you, I leave you with this question. Is Christ the ruler of your heart? Is He the king over your life? And if not, who is? Where does that leave you? My friend, I urge you to embrace Jesus Christ, the Son of David, who is the King over all. Embrace Him as Lord of your life that you might be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that uh, you would enable all of us to be made free from the bondage of sin, the tyranny of Satan, the tyranny of self, 
that we might embrace the King who has come, the Son of David, the root, the branch, the promised Son. Father, we thank you that you have kept all your promises and that despite the many failings of your people throughout history, despite our many failings, you keep your word. We thank you that your promises are true. You have shown us this and how you have brought to full flower the promise that a son would come from David's line to rule on his father's throne forever. May we be inspired and helped and encouraged in our faith to know that you will keep all your promises to us. Please, Lord, now come and bring your gracious and loving rule over all of us in this place that we might know you and love you and worship you as you alone, Father, are due through your Son, the King Jesus Christ. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.